WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader, a national litigation firm advising companies in business disputes, internal investigations, and commercial matters. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Joseph O'Neill read his story, The Poltroon Husband, from the March 12, 2018 issue of the magazine. O'Neill has published four novels, including Netherland, which won the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction in 2009, and The Dog, which came out in 2014. He's also the author of the nonfiction family history, Blood Dark Track. Now here's Joseph O'Neill. The Poltroon Husband Five years ago, we sold the Phoenix House and bought land in Flagstaff and built a house there. Our final abode, I called it. Jane objected to this designation, but I defended myself with what I termed an argument from reality, which was also objected to by Jane, who said I was using an argument from being really annoying. Are you saying... This isn't going to be our final abode, I said. And don't talk to me about hospices or nuthouses. You know what I mean. This is the last place you and I will call home. This is our final abode. I looked up abode. It refers to a habitual residence, of course, but it derives from an old English verb meaning to wait. The expression abide with me can be traced back to the same source. An abode is a place of waiting. Waiting for what? Not to be a downer, but I think we all know the answer. When I shared my research with Jane, she said, I see that your darkness is somewhat useful to you, but it's a bit intellectually weak. This delighted me. The final abode is on a wooded, intermittently waterlogged double lot on South San Francisco Street near the university. The neighborhood was quite ramshackle when we moved in, and to this day it hosts a significant population of indigent men. They come to Flagstaff with good reason, in my opinion. The climate is lovely in this desert oasis 7,000 feet above the sea. There are good social services, and the townsfolk are kind-hearted, I would claim, although it must be noted that the city only recently decriminalized begging. I took part in the protests against the law. Jane whose politics on this point were the same as mine, was disinclined to man the barricades, so to speak. We, the protesters, chanted slogans and held up placards and marched along Beaver Street, where some of us got into good trouble, to use the catchphrase. We sat down in the middle of the road and symbolically panhandled. I was among those sitting down, but not among those randomly arrested by the cops, much to Jane's relief. Our house, the very clever work of a local architect, consists of five shipping containers raised several feet above the ground. Half of one container functions as a garden office, and the other half functions as a covered footbridge over the stream that runs through our land. Previously, you had to negotiate a pair of old planks. The covered bridge was my idea. It makes me stupidly proud when visitors pause to enjoy the view through the bridge's window the small brown watercourse, the sunlit thicket. How fortunate we were to find this magical, overgrown downtown woodland. 
Road traffic is imperceptible from the house, and when the maples and the river birches are in leaf, we cannot be seen by anyone walking by. It is a wonderfully private, precious urban place. One night, Jane grabs my wrist. We are in bed. Did you hear that? she says. Hear what? Jane is still holding my wrist, though not as tightly as before. Shush, she says. We listen. I am about to declare the all clear when there's a noise, a kind of thud, as if a person had collided with the sofa. Jane and I look at each other. What was that? she says. She is whispering. We listen some more. Another noise, not as loud, but also thud-like. It could be a skunk, I say. We have a lot of skunks around here. Skunks are born intruders. Is it downstairs? It's hard for me to give an answer. Although the house has two stories and numerous dedicated zones, to use the architect's phrase, only the bathrooms are rooms, that is, spaces enclosed by four walls and a door. Otherwise, the house comprises a single acoustical unit. This can be confusing. Often a noise made in one zone will sound as if it emanates from another. Now there is a louder noise that must be described as a cough. Something or someone is either coughing or making a coughing sound down there. It's definitely coming from inside the house, I think. I'd better take a look, I say. A little to my surprise, Jane doesn't disagree. I turn off my bedside light. Let's listen again, I say. For several minutes, Jane and I sit up in bed in the darkness and the quiet. We don't hear anything. Actually, that's incorrect. We don't hear anything untoward. You always hear something if you listen hard enough. The susurration of the ceiling fan. The faint roar of the comforter. I think it's fine, I finally say. What's fine? It was nothing, I say. We're always hearing noises. That's basically true. Often at night, a racket of clawed feet on the roof produces the false impression that animals have penetrated the abode. Let's call 911, Jane says. I don't have to tell her that our phones are downstairs, in the kitchen, plugged into chargers. I say, sweetie, there's no need to worry, nothing has happened. Should we check, she says. What she's really suggesting is that I should check, that the checker should be me. I should get out of bed and go downstairs and see what or who is making the noises. I feel this isn't called for. Those noises happened a long time ago, is how I feel about it. I feel that they are historical facts. Jane says, I won't be able to sleep. I wouldn't say that she says this loudly, but she's definitely no longer speaking in what you'd call a low voice. Jane says, I'll just lie here all night, wondering what those noises are what those noises were, 
say. For some reason, I feel very exhausted. Jane says, Honey, it's not safe. I hear her. She's arguing that even if we could fall asleep, it would be unsafe to do so in circumstances in which we've heard thuds and coughs of an unknown character and origin. I say, You're right. I don't move, however. I stay right where I am, in bed. It's important to examine this moment with some care, and above all, to avoid drawing simplistic psychological conclusions. In that moment, which I clearly recall, the following occurred. I was overcome by a dreamlike inertness. I was not experiencing fear as such. I have been afraid, and I know what it is to be afraid. This wasn't that. This was what I'd call an oniric paralysis. Thus, I could intuit that my wife was looking at me, yet my own eyes, open but unaccountably immobilized, were directed straight ahead towards some point in the darkness. I lacked the wherewithal to turn my head and return her look, her bedside lamp lit up, presumably by her hand. I sensed her, climbing out of bed. She appeared at the foot of the bed. There she was visible to me. She fixed her hair into a bun and put on a dressing gown I didn't know existed. She was as beautiful as ever. That much I could take in. She said, I'll go down myself. Here I became most strongly conscious of my incapacitation because I found myself unable to intervene. But for this incapacity, I would surely have pointed out that she was taking a crazy risk. I would have reminded her that Arizona is teeming with guns and gunmen. I would have proposed an alternative to venturing alone downstairs. In short, I would have stopped her. To be clear, my inability to speak up wasn't because I'd lost my voice. It was because the content of my thoughts amounted to a blank. I was the subject of a mental whiteout. My beloved left the zone. I heard her footfall as she went down the stairs. My symptoms improved a little. I found myself able to move my feet over the border of the bed, though no farther. I could not escape a sedentary posture. I perforce awaited the sound of whatever happened next, which was a soft utterance. Certainly it was a human voice, or a human-like voice. Then came a pause, then a repetition of the utterance, equally soft, and then what sounded like a responsive utterance. I heard a movement being made, a movement I understood in terms of clumsiness. Then came a series of sounds made by bodily movements, it seemed. Then another, slightly longer speech episode involving one voice or more than one voice. I couldn't tell for sure. What was being said and being done, and by whom, and in which zone, all these facts were beyond me. I was on the bed's edge. That is to say, 
still bedridden. This state of affairs persisted for a period that even in retrospect remains incalculable. Soft utterances belonging, it seemed, although I could not be sure, to more than one speaker, pauses, the sounds of movements human or animal, and my own stasis. At any rate, there eventually came a moment when the light in the living room was switched on, and very soon after that, I heard the distinctive exhalation of the refrigerator door being opened and the splashing, or plashing, of a liquid being poured into a glass. Here my motive powers returned as mysteriously as they had abandoned me. I got to my feet and went down. Jane is seated at the kitchen table with a glass of milk. She has taken to drinking milk regularly for the calcium. One of her greatest fears is that she'll lose bone density and end up stooped like her mother. Good idea, I say, and I pour myself a glass of milk too, even though my bone density isn't something I lose sleep over. I sit down across the table from her. Jane is on her phone, scrolling, I wait for her to send a text or make a call because she doesn't pick up her gadget for any other reason. She keeps scrolling, though, almost as if she's just passing time. I've never seen her in any kind of dressing gown before. This one has an old-fashioned pattern of brown and green tartan. She looks good in it. I like your dressing gown, I say. Thank you, she says. I thought it might come in useful. I survey the surroundings. I see nothing amiss or unusual. Nor can I smell anything out of the ordinary. Jane finishes her milk. I think I'll go back to bed now, she says. Yes, I say. It's late. I go up with her. In the morning, we follow our routine. I make scrambled eggs and coffee for two. We consume the eggs and coffee, and we retire to our respective work zones. I to the garden office, where I do the consultancy stuff that occupies me for about five hours a day, six days a week. Jane to the studio, which is her name for the zone of the house dedicated to her printmaking activities. We are both very busy on this particular day and work longer and more intensely than usual, and at midday we separately grab a bite to eat. In the late afternoon, I check in on her. How's it going, I say. Good, she says, all vagueness and preoccupation. She's standing at her work table, her palms black with ink. She wears the green apron I know so well. I peek over her shoulder. Very nice, I say. Jane does not respond, which is to be expected. For tonight, I was thinking steak, I say. Yay, Jane says. She loves steak if I make it. So I step out and get the meat and cook it. I open a bottle of red wine. I serve the meat with grilled asparagus and sautéed potatoes. You don't like the steak, I say? Jane has eaten only a mouthful of it. Otherwise, she has finished her food, including two helpings of potatoes. She says... I'm not that hungry. Not hungry, I say. Maybe I'll have some later. I say to her, 
What happened last night when you went downstairs? Jane says, You were right, it was nothing. I say, I heard voices. I heard you talking to someone. You did, she says. You're saying those voices I heard were nothing? You tell me, Jane says. You were there, I say. I wasn't. You tell me. Where were you, she says, in bed? Now she is eating her steak. I say, you're hungry now? I say, who were you talking to? Jane says, are you sure you weren't dreaming? It must be said. I'm furious. Can I get you anything else, I say? A glass of milk? I didn't press Jane further. If there's one thing I'm not, it's an interrogator. I decided to bide my time. Jane, who was a great one for marital candor and discussion, would open up to me sooner or later. Meanwhile, I held off telling her about my side of things, in particular the bizarre condition to which I fell victim on that night, a catastrophic neural stoppage. My story went hand in hand with her story. I couldn't tell her mine unless she told me hers. Three months have passed. Neither of us has brought up the subject. The nocturnal noises have not reoccurred. There have been noises, of course, but none that have caused a disturbance. I may have played a role in this. It has always been the case that when Jane and I call it a day, she goes upstairs while I linger downstairs in order to lock up, switch off the lights, perform a visual sweep, and generally satisfy myself that everything is shipshape and we can safely bed down. Lately, however, I have taken to staying downstairs after my patrol, if I can call it that. I sit in my armchair. All the lights have been turned off, except for the lamp by the chair, so that I am, in effect, spotlighted and clearly visible to any visitor. I remain seated for a period that varies between a half hour and a whole hour. I don't do anything. I remain alert. I offer myself for inspection. Are you coming up? Jane called down when I first began to do this. Yes, I answered. I'm just seeing to a few things. Okay, well, come up soon, Jane said. I miss you. A short while later, she was at the top of the stairs. Love, I'm going to go to sleep soon, she said. You do that, my darling, I said. Get yourself some shut-eye. You've worked hard. Is that new, she said. It's my dressing gown, I said. The dressing gown had been delivered that morning. It had bothered me when I began these vigils that I lacked appropriate attire. To watchfully occupy a chair was a pursuit that belonged neither to the day nor to the night, neither to the world of action nor to the world of rest. Specifically, I wanted to remove my clothing at day's end and yet not sit downstairs dressed only in the pyjamas I wear to bed. The solution was to put on a dressing gown. Shopping for a dressing gown isn't straightforward. Not only is there the danger of ordering a bathrobe by mistake, but also the danger of buying something that will make you look ridiculous. Eventually I found one 
made of dark blue silk. I chose well. I enjoy slipping it on and fastening the sash, and, because this too has become part of the ritual, wetting and combing my hair so that unforeseeably I am more spruce than I've been in years. I'm very much a jeans and lumberjack shirt kind of guy. It looks nice on you, Jane said. As was now the norm, she too was wearing her dressing gown. She added, laughing, in a Hugh Hefner kind of way. Was this an entirely friendly qualification? I couldn't tell. An unfamiliar opacity clouded Jane in that moment, and when she got me monogrammed black slippers for my birthday to complete the Hef look, the cloud suddenly returned. Still, I wear the slippers happily, and whenever I finally turn in, Jane is always awake or half awake, and always rolls over on her side to hold me, and always asks, Is everything okay? It is, I tell her. When I'm sitting in my chair, I automatically compare any weird noises with what disturbed us that night, the thuds, the coughs. The comparison has not yet yielded an echo. I also replay in my mind what I heard when Jane went downstairs, which sounded to me like a conversation between Jane and another person, even though it may have been nothing, and certainly came to nothing and I find myself again looking forward to the day when Jane will finally reminisce about the incident and will at last disclose what happened to her during those long moments when I found myself in a veritable psychic captivity, a state that I'll finally have the opportunity to describe to her. Although it may be, because Jane is given to worry, that it would be best if I protected her from learning about a biobehavioral ailment of such troubling neurophysiological dimensions. It wouldn't be the first time I've kept something from her. I've never told her that when she and I first met, I had reached a point in my life when it would comfort me to look around a room and figure out exactly how I might hang myself. Jane is my rescuer from all of that. It's quite possible that she has forgotten all about the night of the noises. Certainly, the alternative scenario is very improbable. That hers is a calculated muteness, that she is keeping the facts from me on purpose. It wouldn't be like Jane to do such a thing. She can't abide tactical silences. Moreover, this silence would serve no purpose that I can see. Therefore, it cannot be purposeful. In the meantime, I've become quite the expert in what might be called bionomic audio. For example, I've learnt that the chatter of skunks can resemble the chirping of birds. This sort of knowledge doesn't offer itself on a plate. It requires a physical deed. Several times I've stepped out of the abode, armed only with a flashlight, to investigate a noise. One night pursuing a rapid scuttling in the undergrowth. It could have been a lot of things. The raccoon may be spotted in Flagstaff, and the grey fox, and the feral cat, and certainly the squirrel. I found myself in the middle of the woods without my flashlight. It's true that a woods is a sizable wooded area 
and that we're actually concerned with the cops here. But to me it seemed as if I were in the middle of a woods in the middle of the night, even if it was only about ten o'clock. It was very dark. Our block has no street lights, and the nuisance of light trespass doesn't affect us in the slightest. We have only one next-door neighbor, and her property, hidden by oak trees and brush, has been scrupulously disilluminated in compliance with the dark sky's ordinances for which Flagstaff is so famous. I recently looked into installing motion-detecting lights around the house and immediately fell into a deep, scary pit of outdoor lighting codes. Jane was opposed to the very idea. You'll just light up a bunch of rodents, she said. She said, I refuse to live like a poltroon, which made me laugh. I love and admire her fiery verbal streak. A poltroon, I read, is an utter coward, which I knew. I didn't know that the word probably descends from the old Italian poltrire, to laze around in bed, from poltro, bed. Interesting, I guess. Where was I? In dark woods. But once my vision has adapted to the absence of light, of man's light, I am in bright woods. It is a paradox. Dark skies, precisely because they're untainted by the pollution known as sky glow, are extraordinarily luminous. A strong lunar light penetrates the high black foliage and falls in a crazy silver scatter in the underwood. It's quite possible that starlight also plays a part in the wood's weird monochromatic brilliance, which has a powerfully camouflaging effect, in that each usually distinct thing, each plant and rock and patch of open ground, appears in a common uniform of sheen and shadow. This must account for the strange feeling of personal invisibility that comes over me. I lean against a tree, and am tree-like. I find myself calmly standing sentry there, part clad in my mail of moonlight, and doing so in a state of such optical and auditory supervigilance that I perceive with no trace of a startle reflex the movements not only of the forest creatures as they hop and scamper and flit, but even through the blackened chaparral the distant silhouette of a person who stands at a window on San Francisco. When my phone vibrates, it's as if I've pocketed a tremor of the earth. Love, Jane says. Love, where are you? I inform her. She says, The woods? You mean the yard? Are you okay? You've been gone for half an hour. I turn toward the abode. An upstairs window offers an enchanting rectangle of warm yellow light. Otherwise, our abode partakes of the dark and of the woods. I assure Jane that all's well. A bit of me would like to say more, would like to let her know about my adventure in the Silver Forest. Come inside, love, Jane says.
She sounds worried, as well she might. She is a woman all alone in a house in the woods. I'll be right there, I say. Sit tight. I'm on my way. That was Joseph O'Neill reading his story, The Poltroon Husband. This is his fourth story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. This month, Laurie Moore reads Naked Ladies by Antonia Nelson. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Jill Duboff and Kalalea of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.